wise men follow him, they rose again. Wise men follow him, thank God for the renegades and the lives they Welcome to the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, the Conscience of Maine. Broadcast today in Maine on WXME, 780 AM in Monticello, WBCQ, 94.7 in Monticello, 1700 AM in Lewiston, 88.1 FM in Westbrook and Orono, 96.5 FM in Brewer, Bangor, Maine. You'll be hearing this tomorrow. It's uh, That'll be June 20th, 2015. The weather Saturday is going to be sunny with a high near 72. Calm wind becoming southwest 5 to 9 in the morning. Saturday night, chance of rain after 3 a.m., increasing clouds with a low around 53. South wind 8 to 10, chance of precipitation 30%. Sunday, rain likely mainly after 9 a.m., the rain could become heavy, cloudy with a high near 69, south wind around 9, chance of precipitation 70% Sunday, new precipitation amounts between a quarter and a half inch rain possible. And then Sunday night, rain likely before 2 a.m., cloudy with a low around 57, south wind around 6 miles an hour, becoming calm in the evening, chance of precipitation 60%. New precipitation amounts of less than a tenth of an inch. And then Monday, chance of showers, partly sunny, with a high near 74. Calm wind becoming northwest 5 to 8 in the morning, chance of precipitation 40%. So we're having sunshine and rain and sunshine and rain, more and more, same thing. It's a good spring. And we're coming up on the longest day of the year. That will be Sunday the 21st, and uh, the sun will come up earlier and set later than any other time in the entire year. It's the summer solstice. It's, uh, it's a milestone. We're over the hump, and this bad spell between snowmobile seasons will soon be over because the days are going to begin getting shorter, and uh, we'll have some hot days this summer, but so far, we're looking looking good. We've got a good growing season. The corn is coming up. The uh, farmers have, uh, have spread some weed killer on the corn crops. And the corn, most of the corn that's being planted now is, is uh, resistant to uh, Roundup, which is what they're using to, to kill the weeds. Oh, the uh, the gas price is two dollars and sixty one cents a gallon in Orono. Like again, like last week, uh, it's the lowest price in the state of Maine. Is two sixty one in Orono. The highest gas price is three dollars and two cents in Kennebunk, Cumberland, and Gray. Now down in Kennebunk, as I said last week, uh, I figured out. 
the diesel down in Scarborough, rather, excuse me. It's 302 in Kennebunk, Cumberland, and Gray, which is the, the highest gas price. The diesel is 269 in Auburn, which is up, the lowest price is up two cents. The diesel price is 369 in Scarborough. And I figured that people in Scarborough are buying it two or three gallons at a time to put in their zero turn riding lawnmowers. Got to be it. They can't be paying a dollar more for diesel to ride around in their pickup trucks. So that's uh, that's the deal on petroleum prices. Went to a meeting, two meetings yesterday, uh, regarding the proposed national park in northern Maine. It's uh, Roxanne Quimby's dream. 2016, she wants to donate bunch of land so they can form a national park in northern Maine. Well, I got a good quality map of what she owns and what she would like to be a national park or a national recreation area. Six of one and half a dozen of the other. It's still federal land. If it becomes federal land, they don't pay taxes. So the taxes of every single property owner in the Penobscot County would go up because all of the land that they want to make a national park so far is in Penobscot County. And everything east of uh, of Baxter Park in that area is Penobscot County. Now, it's between Baxter Park and Patton, essentially, Stacyville. And that is Penobscot. Mount Chase is in Penobscot County. And then as you go east, then it's rustic. But the park would be entirely in Penobscot County as phase one. What they want is 3.2 million acres. Well, keep your eyes on the prize. Because what they want is 3.2 million acres going from Maine through the White Mountains of New Hampshire, the Green Mountains of Vermont, the Adirondack Mountains in New York State, one big unbroken stretch of what the environmentalists call the Northern Boreal Forest. They dream up uh, descriptive terms for what they'd like to have. They use the word heritage a lot. And what they're trying to do is crush our heritage. Henry David Thoreau went down through there by canoe with Joe Addian, his guide, and from Webster Brook, which runs into Matagammon Lake, now called Grand Lake, Grand Matagammon, is that uh, because they built a big dam there at the outlet of Matagammon, and that's what feeds the East Branch. And when Thoreau went down through there, there were 150 sawmills between Matagammon and Bangor. And when Thoreau came up to Maine to meet Joe Addian at Moosehead Lake, they uh, he was on the Bangor packet coming up the coast. And as they come up into the mouth of Penobscot Bay and first thing in the morning, he woke up and there was all this thumping and banging. And he went out on deck and there's slab wood floating on the ocean as far as the eye could see in all directions. Because what they did with the slab wood from the sawmills was dump it in the river. 
and it went down river. And any low-income person could simply have all the slab wood they ever wanted to have. There's no such thing as pellet plants back then. And they used some of the slab wood to to uh, make steam and drive the sawmills. But there was way more saw, slab wood than anybody had any use for, and they simply dumped it in the river. Back when the log drives were still running, you could fish along the edge of the, of the booms, and uh, fly fishing was great because underneath the booms, the water was cool, and it was shaded, and it was shelter for fish and shelter for bait fish. And the insects would drop off of the logs, and trout would feed on the insects, and it was a good thing. The old log drives were were good, good for our economy. And then the environmentalists said, you can't drive logs down the river because they might bump into each other, you know. And some of the bark would rub off and fall down on the bottom. It, it would settle in the bottom of the rivers, and the, the trout wouldn't have any room to spawn with all that bark on the bottom of the river. They just didn't know what they were talking about. Well, they forced Great Northern to build a road so they could haul wood out of the, out of the woods by truck instead of floating it down the river. Now, the environmentalists should have liked moving logs down the river because water runs downhill. And the logs went downhill by gravity in the river. And when they got down out of the West Branch, as far as to Sun Cook Lake, they had the West Branch number two was a steamer. And at the boom house, at the mouth of the West Branch where it runs into to Sun Cook Lake, they had a big boom house. And at the boom house, they would make log booms. They'd take a big log, a saw log, drill a hole in the end, and they'd drop a pin down through, a toggle on the end of a log boom, boom chain. And the toggle would engage the bottom of that hole and you couldn't pull it out until it was loosened up. And his boom chains are, used to be found on the bottom of the, of the rivers and on the bottom of, of the shorelines where the, the log was split from so much force. The log was split and the boom chain would fall off and land on the bottom. And lots of camps have boom chains hanging up someplace at camp. I know there's a boom chain somebody put up over the limb of a tree and the tree grew around it. It's grown right into the tree. That's on the Mattawankeg River. But boom chains were how they cinched them all together. And then the West Branch, number two, would steam down to Suncook Lake. And they wanted to do it when there was a north wind because it was easier to pull that great big boom of logs down the, down the lake, down to Rip Dam. And eventually, when, when the... Uh, When the environmentalists made them stop booming logs, it didn't make sense to try to to move the West Branch Number Two to any other place. It didn't make sense for Great Northern to maintain the West Branch Number Two because they weren't going to be using it for anything. Nobody wanted to buy it at auction, so they went up into a place called Holmes Hole, 
on the east side of to Suncook Lake, about one third of the way up from from the old uh, dam, but just above Ripogenus Lake, there was a, a dam in the beginning that dammed up to Suncook Lake, and then when they built Rip Dam, it flooded the old dam. So north up, going up to Suncook Lake on the east side, about one third of the way up the lake, was Holmes Hole. And that was a small pond, used to be called Holmes Pond. But when they flooded it, they flooded Caribou Lake, Umbazuskis Lake, and Holmes Pond. And they ran the West Branch Number 2 up into Holmes Pond and ran it ashore at full throttle. And the last man on the boat jumped out and it ran aground and sank. They set it on fire and burned it right to the water line right there. And the old ribs of the West Branch Number 2 were still there. The ice is breaking it up and it's gradually deteriorating. The wood rots. But I've got two brass hinges that were probably on a trunk or a wooden box. And uh, maybe they kept maps in it or something. But I've got two brass hinges and a couple of pieces of wrought iron that came out of of the West Branch Number 2. And they're sitting up on my desk. And it's just something from back then. That year, when I collected those, we had canoed the West Branch. And it was a dry year. The West Branch was unusually low. We had to step out of the canoe a number of times. And we uh, get down to the ledges just before where Pine Stream runs into into the West Branch. There was a, a nice place to fish there. Good trout fishing. A great big uh, a stream runs in there. And there's uh, some ledges there on the right night some bushes growing out of the ledges and you can you can tuck the bushes under your knee and hold the canoe in place by holding on to the bushes there and I was fly fishing sitting down in the canoe and uh, all of a sudden I heard this thrashing and banging coming down whooping and hollering it was a boy scout troop from the high adventure area coming down the west branch and they were having a good time throwing buckets of water at each other and yelling and hollering and Kids having a good time. They weren't the adults just kind of keeping them all together so we didn't lose any of them. And they get down there, and this one kid up front picked up a Zebco rod, a rod with a Zebco reel. He had a daredevil on there about the size of a Ford Fender. He wound that thing down the length of the pool, and cut splash went the daredevil. He turned that handle about three times, and wham! A brook trout hit that great big daredevil. That brook trout had probably never seen anything like it, thought it might be good to eat. And he hit that great big daredevil about the size of my hand. And that trout jumped all over the place. And I'd caught a couple of trout, traditional fly fishing, using a hornberg. <laughs> when that calamity hit that pool and that trout hit that big daredevil, I said, that's it. I said, I give up. <laughs> I took off and I headed down. And right at the end of of uh, Pine Stream, where it runs in, there's a big bell hanging on a tree there. And uh, you could ring that bell, and somebody would come up through the boom, the log boom, with the boom scow. It's a it's a small steamboat. 
and they'd go up through all the logs, four-foot pulpwood, and coming up through the logs, and uh, you could put your canoes on the boom boat, and they'd take you down to the boom house, and you could camp on the front lawn or off on the side lawn. It's a long time ago. The boom house is gone. The uh, the lawn is still there, and somebody comes over from from Graveyard Point or to Suncook Village, and they uh, and they mow that lawn at the boom house. I don't think the state does it. I think it's one of the one of the folks that owns camps there. And. Uh, they used to have a steamer, a steam engine, a donkey engine. It was powered by steam and a boiler, and they would cinch up the logs. They'd run these boom, boom logs around this great big purse. Of, they called it a purse, of, where they boomed up all these, all these logs, four-foot wood. And they would winch it in. And if there was a breeze blowing, it was really hard to winch it in. So they, well, this is years ago, this is before my, my era, but when they were winching the, the purse together, trying to bring the ends together as close as they could and get all that wood nice and tight in, inside the boom, they weren't making much progress because the breeze was blowing. It's hard to winch all those logs against the breeze. So I says, well, put, put a tunk in there. A tunk is a, is a wedge. And uh, put a tunk in there. So they had a, a safety, and the, the boiler kept lifting the safety, so they put a tunk in there. And they put a little more wood in there, and the steam pressure went up and up and up, and all of a sudden, boom, that boiler blew up. And the man that was standing there, trying to winch it in, was badly burned. And he ran, and he jumped in the lake to... To, uh, to relieve the, the pain and to you know cause the injury to be minimized if he could, and he ran off in the woods, just screaming with pain, and they couldn't catch him. He ran off in the woods, and they figured, well, he was burned so bad he must have died because they couldn't find him. But then at night food would disappear. It wasn't a bear. He, you know, wasn't no destruction. He, somebody was sneaking into camp and taking the food. And it turned out that it was the man that had been burned. And they tried to catch him. And he was so embarrassed. He's a, you know, a simple man. I don't know what his name was, but there was a legend that you know they couldn't, never could catch him. But they began, they put food out for him when they realized that this is this has to be who it is taking the food. And they put food out for him and put supplies out for him, and he was taking care of himself, you know, in his own way. And people would see him once in a while going down through with a canoe, and he he is. His appearance was so terrible that they began to speak about the monster of Tsuncook. People were afraid of this this creature. And 
there began to be stories told about the monster of Chisunkuk and how terrible looking he was. And think about this this poor man that was burned so bad and, and so disfigured and embarrassed, he didn't want to be seen by people. Uh, what a lonely existence he must have been, but he lived more than two years. Because the next summer they he was taking food, you know, and and uh they saw his tracks but they never saw him. Once in a while somebody would see him. The loggers couldn't catch him. He did not want to be caught. And uh, the monster which is Suncook legend uh lasted for years and years. Eventually he must have passed away because if he had came out into society, you know, certainly would have been people would have known it. But he lived for a couple of years, at least, and uh, that's a, an old West Branch to Sun Cook legend. I wrote a short piece about it a number of years ago that was published in uh, Down East Magazine. Speaking of writing, I don't just talk all the time. I, every now and then I'll write a letter to the editor. And I wrote one, and it was published in the Lincoln, Lincoln News on Wednesday, and then Today, it was published in the Bangor Daily News, and it was Rusty Rails. And years ago, you know, the railroads were a vital lifeline for passengers and for for moving freight, a lot of freight. They moved coal up to the mills and old Bronker Sea oil up to the mills, and raw materials, clay, and various chemicals, and for making paper, and then the finished product was hauled back down the railroad, going to market. Printing papers of all kinds, tissue paper, and uh, in the railroads just were a vital part of our economy. And as the economy declined, the railroads declined. And for small, you know, for, for shipping 20 tons of a product to one destination, a truck is the best way to ship it. You'll get there quickly, and uh, they're reliable. You can predict when they're going to get there. The trucking is is vital to our economy, and the truckers, especially the independent truckers who own their own trucks, they're the knights of the road. They've got a lot of respect for truckers. They take great risk, and uh, it's expensive. They hope hope that their truck is reliable because when a truck has an engine failure or a transmission failure or something really major, you know, it's a major expense to the, to the family. So it might go uh, no luxuries for some time. But I noticed that the rails going through Lincoln, Maine are rusty. And I checked back, and the last train to go through Lincoln I believe was September of last year. So that's nine months of no freight. Now somebody told me that there was one train that went up through with oil, the uh, going to St. John, New Brunswick, but most of it doesn't go that way now. It goes through, uh, comes from Western Maine, goes down through Moosehead, Greenville to Brownville, comes across through Mattawamkeag and continues east, going to St. John, New Brunswick. That's the route it's taking again. They stopped that route for a while uh, because of the 
of the explosion up in Quebec. The uh, that train was left running, and and the brakes weren't set, or the brake got loose or something. And I don't know exactly what happened, but it was certainly negligence that that train ran down at high speed into the middle of that that town in in Connecticut, yeah, <laughs> that town in Quebec, and the train didn't blow up. The train derailed, fell over, ripped the the tank cars open, and the oil caught fire and burned. And it was a it was a huge fire, and it ran down and you know. Floated on the lake, Megantic, Lake Megantic. I've been up through there a number of times. I used to work up in Canada. But I noted that the rails were rusty in Lincoln. And I checked back. The last known train that went through Lincoln was September. That's a huge indication of our economy. And how we're doing as a nation. You know, the pulp mill blew up in Lincoln, and for a while they continued to to bring uh, bring raw materials in to make printing papers, and then eventually they couldn't they couldn't haul in enough pulp to run those machines profitably. They could make money in that mill when they're making their own pulp, but they can't buy pulp on the open market and make money with printing papers. It's the other mills that have pulp mills are just more efficient, such as Rumford and Madison, whatnot. Scott at Hinkley. Used to be Scott, now it's something else. The mill at Hinkley. Sappy. South African pulp and paper industry. That's what Sappy stands for. Most of our larger industries are being bought up by foreign countries because they've got the money and and we don't. Red China is going to build eight tissue machines in Baileyville. I don't call it Woodland on the, on the radio station because this is the Northern Maine Landman Show and everybody knows where Woodland is. It's up way northern Rooster County, up near New Sweden. Down here... It's the Woodland Mill, because the mill is in the woods, but it's Baileyville. And they don't make paper at Baileyville anymore. They just make pulp. But they're going to put in two tissue machines. Because Red China has discovered toilet paper, and they like it. They're going to build eight tissue machines. There are two going in now. They've actually poured the foundations for them. And the dryers for a tissue machine are really big. And they're like 18 feet in diameter or something like that. And they cast the the ones, the last new tissue machine built in the state of, in fact, the last new paper machine built in Maine was the new tissue machine at Lincoln about 12 years ago. And that dryer is cast in one piece. And the way they cast it is they have a big mold and they get the mold spinning, and they pour the cast iron in there while the mold is spinning. And it fills it up, and it's held in place by centrifugal force. And then they keep it spinning, and the cast iron cools and solidifies, and uh, they keep it spinning. And then eventually, they 
slow it down, and they bring it to a full stop and take the mold off. That's how it's done. And then each end is poured flat, and they drill all the holes, and they put each end on with a journal on it with a pin that the whole thing rotates on. They put bearings on that, and that's, that's the pulp dryer, the tissue dryer. That's how it's made. And there are other, other products that are made through spin casting also. It's quite a process. But that dryer was made in Finland, brought across the ocean on a ship, picked up off the ship, put on a barge, picked up off the barge, and set on trucks in Eastport. And then the trucks went up Route 1 and across Route 6 to Lincoln, Maine. I was there when it came up uh, Weatherby Hill in Springfield, Maine. And there were two very powerful uh, tractors pulling the thing up, uh, tractor trailer. And the tractors were in the front, and there's a big, great big trailer with probably 80 tires on this trailer, and a gooseneck trailer on front and back both, and this, this great big dryer sitting down, almost touching the pavement in the middle. And they going along there, and they had plastic plates lifting up the wires as they went up. And they started up the east side of Weatherby Hill, and it started to rain. And those two trucks couldn't pull it up the hill. It just just that little bit of water on the surface was enough that they started jumping and shaking and spinning the tires and came to a stop right there on the hill. They had to get another great big truck to pull from the front, and another great big truck to push from the back. And they went back up over the top of the hill. Was, and I just sat there and watched that at the at the mouth of the of the Bottle Lake Road in Springfield. And then they continued on into Lincoln. I took pictures of it. It's uh it's an amazing thing. To see something that big being hauled by truck. But they couldn't haul it by rail because it couldn't fit under any bridges. And railroad tracks don't generally go over roads. Uh, the roads go over the railroad track. It's cheaper, more efficient. So they had to lift up the wires. In a few cases, they had to actually cut the wires. And after you went by, they had to re-splice it again. Because the wires just weren't high enough. They weren't designed for that thing. A lot of them were, though. So the Chinese are going to bring these in, and uh, I wonder if they're going to make their own dryers in China. They're pretty creative. But they may just buy them in Finland. It may be the most efficient way to go. just don't know that yet. But when I find out, I'll report it on the Northern Mainland Band Show. Went to the two meetings in regarding the park yesterday. First was was just a, a press conference where landowners and, and people that are interested in the land spoke up there in Medway. And they had a big map. And they showed what Roxanne Quimby owns. And they show what Roxanne Quimby does not own. And there's a lot of land, 59,800 acres 
of land that's owned by other people that she wants the federal government to own. They don't want to sell. It's their livelihood. It's their business. They're growing trees for market. And there is still a good market for lumber and the byproducts such as pellets and fuel wood, biomass. I mean, the whole tree gets used up. And, you know, the, the limbs and the tops, as much as possible, get used up. And it goes to as fuel to a biomass plant. There's one up in Ashland, there's one in Enfield, and there's a bunch of them around me. And they make electricity with it. And what comes out of the plant is a little bit of ash and carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is plant food. It's good for our environment. When you plant a seed of corn in the field, and that corn seed sprouts, and sprouts a corn plant seven or eight feet high, depending on the season, and there's one or two ears on that stalk of corn, uh, then, you know, all that corn didn't come from the ground. All of the carbon, all the biomass, if you will, in that stalk of corn came from the air. Well, the water came out of the ground. That's what the roots are in there for. The roots pick up water, just like a tree or any other plant. And the plant grows, but the carbon comes out of the air from the carbon dioxide that is is nature's way of, of keeping our planet alive. The life on planet Earth that the good Lord made is feeds on oxygen and carbon. Just like us. The food we eat has a high carbon content and various other minerals that we need. And the water we drink and the air that we breathe. It's a it's a balanced system. When we exhale air, we're exhaling carbon dioxide, which is plant food. We burn gasoline in our vehicles, and the gasoline is cleaner than it used to be. It's low sulfur, and the exhaust that comes out is carbon dioxide for the most part. It's plant food. And over the, over the thousands of years, the plants have been fed by carbon dioxide. Now, man came along, and we started using carbon dioxide more efficiently we didn't just have we weren't burning peat they dug up from the peat bog like they did in Ireland and some of the northern European countries they burned wood for fuel wood was the primary fuel for thousands of years the Germans burned coal and the Swedes burned coal uh, but it's you know it's easier to cut wood and haul wood than it is to mine coal so all the coal deposits that were exposed on the surface of the ground were pretty much used up, and they didn't get into coal mining until the industrial age came. People burned wood for fuel. That was it. Some societies burned animal dung, cow flops, buffalo dung out on the plains. The plains Indians learned to make fire 
and uh, they did their cooking uh, with, with no trees on the Great Plains. They burned cow dung and dry grass to make fires. But it's all carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is a good thing. The environmentalists will tell you everything we do is bad. People are bad. Our waste is bad. Carbon dioxide is bad. It's all bad. Everything's bad. They're just the world's greatest pessimists are environmentalists. They want to build a national park in northern Maine. But Roxanne and her company, her son, the pastry chef from Seattle, don't want this to happen. They don't want people to own land. And all of the private landowners up there, there's 56 different private landowners that would have to lose their property. Now, the usual process when the federal government gets all enthusiastic and they decide they want a national park like the one in the Cuyahoga Valley in Ohio, there was a, a, a farming society, lots of farms, dairy farms, vegetable farms, grain farms, corn and oats and wheat in Ohio. Ohio's got a good climate. They've got good water, lots of sunshine in the summertime. It's good for farming. They wanted to come in there and create a national park in the Cuyahoga Valley. And they told the people that they wanted to preserve their way of life and they wanted to have some campgrounds so people could come and just watch them and, and enjoy enjoy the, their countryside. And it's a pretty country. Kind of like over in western Maine around Rumford. And they, uh, they started to buy up land. And gradually they choked. And they, they bought land from the older people and their kids weren't interested in farming, so they'd buy that farm and they were going to preserve it, okay? When they say preserve, they mean turn it back into a pre-Columbian state before Columbus ever came here. So they buy the farm, demolish the house, burn it, bulldoze the cellar hole, and let it go back. So the farm fields, they didn't bush hog the fields and preserve that heritage and that scenery. They let it grow up into woods. In Maine, if you don't keep a field mowed, it will be a forest all by itself. I went down to Augusta and testified against the compact. And then I went down and I was defeated twice by the voters. First of all, the legislature wouldn't touch it. Sent it out to a vote. And the voters turned it down twice in a row. And Angus King, what are we going to do? Angus King's old environmentalist, look, promised I could do this and we're not getting it. So they came up with a a new idea that they call the Maine Forest Practices Act. That sounds like some sort of a bureaucratic maneuver. And they, but we called it Son of Compact because it was worse than the compact. You know how Son of Dracula and Son of Frankenstein is worse than the old man? Well, they, they, uh, they passed this thing. <coughs> and that's when all the paper companies started selling their land. There is not one acre of 
Maine Paper Company land left in the state of Maine today. None. It's all gone. I have people call me up and say, I'd like to buy a piece of land that abuts paper company land. I said, there isn't any. Well, what do you mean? It's gone. The land is still there, but it isn't paper company land anymore. And it's got all kinds of environmental restrictions on it because when a board of directors is forced out of business, they're going to leave behind a scorched earth. When the paper company land left, all kinds of conservation easements on that land where nobody's ever going to make a buck on it. It hurts our economy. It hurts it badly. Last week, after the show, I found out that that Barack Hussein Obama's TPA was defeated, resoundingly defeated, 300 to 100, roughly. 300 and some odd votes to 100 and some odd votes in the House down in Washington. And TPA was the Trade Promotion Authority. The word authority should raise a red flag every time you see it because they're looking for power. Authority is power. And Barack Hussein Obama wants power. And he keeps taking more and more power. Now he wants to have a Trade Promotion Authority czar. There's no place in our Constitution or in our laws or a way of life for czars, he wants to have another czar. He's got 32 of them. He wants to have 33. It's a magic number in the Muslim faith. And he wants 33 czars. And he uh, he was defeated. So now they're coming back, and they're going to have another vote for something very similar to it. And it's it's. Chairman Mao's principle. Chairman Mao had a process when he totally enslaved China. Two steps forward, one step back. It's in his little red book. It's in Angus King's little green book, very similar to Mao's red book. And Obama has his own agenda. And if you read his book, Dreams of My Father, You'll see what he wants. He says what he wants. And it, it's it's frightening. It's a terrible thing for our country, and people are just letting it happen. So he's come back with this other bill, which is not as bad as the first bill, they say. It's still terrible. It's an abrogation of our Constitution and a loss of our sovereignty. You can't explain it any more simply an abrogation of our Constitution and a loss of our sovereignty where the Sultan of Brunei would have just as much authority as the United States of America. That's trade promotion authority where Obama could simply establish this. Bill Clinton's chief of staff made a famous quote regarding executive orders. Stroke of the pen... Law of the land. Heck of a deal. And I'll never forget it. Sometimes I can remember his name, (laughs) but not this moment. And so you got the TPA. You got the TPP, 
Trans-Pacific Partnership. And that's the part where the Sultan of Brunei would have just as much power as the United States of America. He's a dictator. The Sultan. The Sultan is one step below the caliph, and they want a caliphate where the Muslims would rule the entire world. That's what they're headed toward. And then there's the TISA, the Trade in Services Act. This is where other countries could regulate the services that we perform. Now, I'm in the service industry. Northern Maine landman. I am a real estate broker. I find properties for people that they would like to buy. And somebody comes to me, can you sell my property? Yep, I can sell your property. And I find a buyer for it. And they pay me to do this. I wish I'd realized I could do this for a living when I was 35 years old. Because I wouldn't have been walking down the backside of a smelly, noisy old paper machine. Paper industry is good, hard-working people. It's a fine thing, and we need paper. But I would rather be walking down the woods road back in the woods than walking down the backside of a paper machine. People choose their make choices in life, and I just didn't understand that that I could be the northern Maine landman because I didn't take over from the previous northern Maine landman. I invented it. I said looked at the real estate industry and I said, well, in the town where I live, a person could be born, live, and die in the same house. And then grandson inherits the house. And there's no place in that scenario for a real estate broker. But there is a good market for land and they're not making any more of it. So I went in the land business. I saw land farms, camps, stores, and once in a while I sell a house. But residences are not the primary part of my business. I sell land. I like it. And what they want to do is they want to regulate the service industry. They want to regulate me. They want to regulate everybody in the service industry. I'm a real estate broker. They want to regulate stockbrokers. They want to regulate banks. Banks don't produce anything. Banks are a service industry. They're a place where you put your money. They pay you a little bit so that they can hold on to your money. They invest your money and try to make make money for the bank. And they pay you a little bit of interest. Right now, the interest is running about one quarter of 1%. It doesn't begin to cover the inflation. So if you put $1,000 in the bank, 1% of that is $100, and one quarter of that is $25. So you put $1,000 in the bank, at the end of the year, you can go to the bank and draw it out, and you get $1,025. Well, that's not a very, much, not a very big increase on the $1,000 that you parked in the bank. And they want to regulate the banking industry. Now, remember back a year ago, or more than a year ago, I, I mentioned LIBOR several times. LIBOR is the London International Overnight Bank Rate, bank overnight rate, excuse me. And five guys in a boiler room 
in New Jersey were actually controlling it. Well, they work for the Federal Reserve. That's the long and the short of it. And the international banks. But these five guys, young guys, 25, 35 years old, were controlling this thing. And what the worst example that I mentioned a year ago was a guy was going to set the rate for a particular class of financial obligations overnight. And billions and billions of dollars are going to change hands, and then they take it back out in the morning before everything banks open up. And that day, the guy can make a couple of million dollars on these shenanigans. And the guy said, I'll do that if you get me a Chinese takeout. So this guy went out and got a meal local Chinese restaurant brought it in and essentially gave the guy millions of dollars. And that's how loose and slipshod the system is. And you and I don't have any traction. We don't have any advantages. We don't have any power at all in this system. You shop around the different banks and you're going to get between a quarter of 1%, a tenth of 1%, or 2%. If you can get 2% interest instead of a quarter of 1%, at the end of the year, a $1,000 deposit, you'll have $200 instead of $25. It does make sense to shop around if you've got any money in the bank. But in Greece, Greece can't pay its bills. The nation made more promises than their economy and their citizens could possibly support. Well, guess what, folks? Our nation has done the same thing. They have made more promises than they can possibly support. Lyndon Johnson's grand society has sucked us dry. That and the various wars and other misappropriation of public funds that we've had. We don't have the money to meet our own obligations. Everybody knows this, except for Joe Sixpack sitting home watching reruns of of Dancing with the Stars and America's Newest Hero or whatever the heck they are on TV. Most people don't really understand the system and how it's going to affect them soon. What they do understand is they have a sense that things are not going well. Something something bad is going to happen. And they've got this vague sense of unease. And then you've got groups of people in our country that understand that they don't have any hope at all except for the federal government. And then you have it, it, incidents like, like Baltimore a month ago. And the mayor of Baltimore said, well, we've got to give these people some room to destroy. How's that for government policy? Give these people room to destroy. Well, what are they destroying? They're not destroying the bridges in City Hall. They're destroying private property. The livelihoods of of families that they've been encouraged to destroy in Baltimore. And the clock is ticking. 
That is a, that is not a unique thing, and it's certainly not new. 1968, they had riots in Watts where they burned vast areas in South Los Angeles. There's still vacant lots there because nobody wants to build there. What's the likelihood that somebody's going to invest in that area of Baltimore, Maryland? Would a businessman choose to locate there? You open up the back page of the Northwood Sporting Journal and just on the face page, look across there, and there's my ad for real estate. And I put normally have six properties in there each month. And last month and this coming month, I've got four properties and a little statement down the bottom. And essentially it says, where would you like to spend the rest of your life? Where you are right now or in Maine? We have a lot going for us in Maine. It's a great place. It's clean. You can dip your dip your cup and I have a when I used to go canoe and I had a Sierra cup on my on my belt. It's a stainless steel cup and you can you can stick it in the fire and heat up some water and have a cup of coffee or tea or or a cup of soup. Dump some dried soup in there and some water and heat it up and have a lunch. It's on our canoe trips. We've been on a lot of canoe trips. All the rivers over the years. And I'd dip my Sierra cup in the lane, any lake or river in the state of Maine. Well, some rivers, you know, but, you know, I wouldn't. Down around Old Town, I didn't drink that water out of the Penobscot. But below Millinocket, there's no, there's no pulp mill in Millinocket. There's no pulp mill in Lincoln. The first pulp mill, the only pulp mill left on the river is in Old Town. And they're squeezing them. Environmentalists are squeezing Old Town. You may see that close. So, we've got clean water. We've got clean air. The FBI says we're the safest state in the nation. We just lost that designation to Vermont. We go back and forth with Vermont. Vermont has constitutional carry. They've never had any firearms laws that says you can't carry a pistol in Vermont. They don't need it. Crime rate in Vermont is very low, and you don't know who's carrying in Vermont and who isn't. You know, and when that 21-year-old druggie shot up that church in Charleston, South Carolina, if just two or three of those people in that church had handguns on them, they wouldn't have had as many victims. The nine people killed. They might have had one or two. That would have been the end of that druggie. The shooter down there didn't receive that pistol as a gift from his parents for his 21st birthday. That shooter has been a druggie since he was 14 years old. It's illegal for him to obtain a firearm, and it's illegal for anybody to give him a firearm. And he took the birthday money that his parents gave him and went out and purchased that firearm from somebody. And eventually, they'll, because most firearms transactions, most firearms have a, a record as to where they were first produced, who made it, you know, who it was sold to. 
to some wholesaler, and the wholesaler shipped it to a local gun shop, and somebody bought that pistol. And eventually it goes cold. Somebody might swap the pistol with somebody he doesn't know in a gravel pit or some back alley or whatever. So it may go cold, but they can know who the last one was that where they had that pistol and say, what did you do with this pistol? It was used in this horrific crime. Well, I traded to a guy for for a boat or whatever, you know. And well, who was it? I don't know. You know. Or he might have swapped it for a rifle in a gravel pit one Saturday afternoon. He liked the rifle, and the other guy liked the pistol, and they went part of their ways, and they have no idea who they were. You can ride down the road and go stop at a yard sale, and there's a, a 357 Magnum on the picnic table. You can buy it. It's legal. It's okay. It's constitutional. We have a right to bear arms. Druggies don't have a right to bear arms. This guy was a convicted felon, and he should not have had possession of a firearm. It was illegal. So legal firearms ownership had nothing to do with this atrocity that occurred. This has been the Northern Maine Landman Show. On the Constitution Radio Network, Conscious of Maine, broadcast today in Maine on WXME, 780 AM Monticello, WBCQ 94.7 in Monticello, and all the way down to Danforth, 1700 AM in Lewiston, 88.1 FM in Westbrook and Orono, 96.5 FM in Brewer and Bangor, Maine. Be safe, wear your life jacket, water's still cold, enjoy the weekend, going to be a little damp on Sunday, so get out there tomorrow and have fun. Be safe. God bless. Wise men follow him. Wise men follow him. Thank